I'm Duffy Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayer. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 126. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Joe. And this is... <laughs> and this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of October 13th through November 2nd. We have a total of four books to cover, just a couple of news points. So let's just get right into the news. What have you got for me? Just a couple of different things that have happened since the last time we spoke. The very first thing is the solicitations were released right right around the time of the release of the last episode. Uh, the solicitations are on the website for you to check out, but among um, a number of the specific things that are happening, the Detective Comics 27, which we talked about last episode, um, the the oversized special issue that is going to be 96 pages long, uh, not necessarily the full lineup, but a larger chunk of the creators that are going to be involved in it have been named. Um, Writing will include John Lehman, Scott Snyder, Paul Dini, Brad Meltzer, Greg Hurwitz, and Peter Tomasi. Um, and art is going to be done by Jason Fabic, Neil Adams, Dustin Wen, Gilliam March, Frank Miller, and others. So who knows who the others are, but uh, this book will have a number of variant covers as well. Um, a 125th, a 150th, and a 1-100th variant cover. Um, so this uh, the, the cover price for this specific issue will be will be uh, $7.99 or $8, which, comparatively speaking, doesn't really seem as... It, it seems as if it should be more. I don't know why. I, I don't know why I'm thinking it should be more, because I feel like the 900th issue I thought was $6.99, and I thought it was around the same amount of pages. So I don't know why I'm thinking it should be more. But nonetheless, um, as far as the uh, specific... The specifics of the issue, we don't know anything that's actually going to happen other than John Lehman's story will uh, kick off a new storyline that is going to be taking place in a number of different books called Gothatopia. Um, Among the books that will be tying into this storyline outside of Detective Comics will be Batgirl, Batwing, Catwoman. Now, this also is interesting because this actually marks the first crossover that's happened in the Batman universe that's not headed by Scott Snyder. Um, as we know, there's been three crossovers with the books, including this month's zero month that Scott Snyder has headed up, but this one is actually headed up, um, by John Lehman. So it's, it's interesting that, uh, well, I don't know if it's interesting. It's, it's really, it's more about time that there's been, there's another event that's happening that is crossing over. I don't really consider the death of Damien and the, you know, one panel things that happened in each issue, a, a, a technically a crossover. Um, you know, they had the, the special cover, which was really just a banner on top of it. And then the, you know, the simple, oh, we're all going to simply address this in maybe one page of Damien's death. But, uh, outside of that, it's only been Scott Snyder who has had stories that everybody's been crossing into. So, 
I just think it's kind of interesting because, you know, Scott Snyder, it's, it's nice to see that, you know, there are other writers that can head up stories that aren't necessarily only having to be written by Scott Snyder. I might be wrong and you probably reading from the solicitation, but I thought it was said that this was going to be an origin story for Batman. Well, the solicitation specifically reads, and, and like this is obviously going to change because there's different character or different writers writing different stories. It says, DC Entertainment presents this mega-sized issue featuring an all-star roster of Batman creators past and present. Don't miss this modern-day retelling of the Dark Knight's origin by the incredible team of Brad Meltzer and artist Brian Hitch, plus all new stories by Scott Snyder and Sean Murphy, Peter J. Tomasi and Gillian March, Paul Dini and Dustin Wen, Greg Hurwitz and Neil Adams, new art by legendary Batman writer-artist Frank Miller, and more. Also in this issue, John Lehman and Jason Fabick kick off the new storyline, Gothitopia. It's a bright, shiny, happy place where dreams come true, as long as you don't look at all things too closely. So, yes, there is going to be an origin story by Brad Meltzer, um, but I don't think that's going to be the, 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 ch- the giant chunk of the issue. Now, given, you know, 96 pages, you split that up with just the pairings that they mentioned. So there's there's seven pairings, including Layman and Fabic, on this book. And I honestly feel as if a lot of the stories are going to be shorter stories. Um, I think the Scott Snyder, Sean Murphy story, uh, I think they're referencing a Batman in space, which I'm sure some cool. people are going to absolutely love and <laughs> people will absolutely hate. But... Uh, <laughs> That it's been hinted at on, uh, Scott Snyder's been tweeting about doing a story with Sean Murphy and the story that, uh, and Sean Murphy has tweeted some random things here and there re- seemingly related to this. I thought it was actually related to Batman Eternal, but once it was announced that these two were going to be paired on this, it really made sense where, okay, so this must be where this story is going to be. So, uh, Scott Snyder said it's going to be a, you know, Batman is going to be in space in the story and Sean Murphy's doing the art. So I would assume that that's happening in this issue. Cool. Um, yeah, I will be really surprised if, uh, Frank Miller and a few of these other people don't end up just being, um, what's the word? Not splash pages, you know, just like a, a picture, just. Yeah, I know what you're talking there, about. There is a, just, yeah, just the yeah. gallery, the gallery that yeah. they do in a lot of these yeah. books. I will not be surprised if that's all it is. I mean, I think it says new art, but uh, it doesn't say anything about an actual story or any sequential stuff. So I would not be surprised if that was the case. Um, also, I've never really been one for variant covers and things like that. But the fact that they're kind of showing off this Chris Burnham one, which isn't the standard color, the cover is upsetting me because I think it's a really nice cover. And... Uh, yeah, Kelly Jones is also doing a cover, so <laughs> and I know not everyone is a Kelly Jones fan, but I am. Yeah, um, including myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I I kind of uh well I'm definitely looking forward to seeing these covers, but um I don't know, this might be the one time I splash out and, and get one of these variants. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to this. I just I think they're selling it as more than it will end up being. I think that it uh sounds like it's worthwhile, the amount of money there. Uh, I'm looking forward to Meltzer because I actually really liked his Justice League run that when they restarted it with the number one back in like 2005. I was very much enjoying it. He's a, he's a great author. So I, I think this will be – I'm actually looking forward to it, different stories. You know, Batman in space, I think that – Perhaps it will be interesting, if only to laugh at it. But actually, what if it's like the best story? I think that would be pretty ironic. But looking forward to it. 
Yeah, I'm also really looking forward to having another Paul Dini Batman story. Oh, Paul yeah, Dini very true. When This will be the first time they've teamed up since Streets of Gotham. Okay, so the only other news we've got to talk about, uh, there was an interview that we posted on the website on October 25th with Brad Meltzer talking about his story that will be appearing in Detective Comics number 27. If you are interested in that, you can take a look at the website. But the other thing that I do want to talk about on October 28th, James Tinian talked with Newsarama about Tim Drake and Stephanie Brown appearing in Batman Eternal. Um, so I'm just going to kind of breeze through some of these questions. Uh, the first thing they ask is, uh, Tim Drake is going to be in the, uh, Tim Drake's going to be in the Bat universe. Are you writing him in the series? And he said, yes. He is going to be one of the major characters over the course of the whole year. That was always one of the goals. Tim has had a lot of great stories going on since the new 52 started. But he's kind of been disconnected from the core Bat family, and we wanted to show his role and all the key relationships he has with the Bat family members and tell a Gotham story, although it might expand out of Gotham, but a Gotham-style story featuring Tim and some other major characters in the Bat family. Um, then they went on to ask him about Stephanie Brown and uh, how she could, why would she be good in this uh, weekly series, and he said, a lot of it's hard to talk about because with the series launching in the spring, we're still a ways off. I'd say at the core of it, there is a very specific role in the series that she was just absolutely perfect to fill. And when we pitched it that to DC, they agreed. This was the moment. The moment is now. This oh, is the gosh. time to bring Stephanie back into continuity. Because part of our goal, we love that Stephanie has such a huge fan base, but our goal in this story isn't just to tease that fan base, but also like triple the size of it. We want to introduce a whole new generation of readers who may have never read Stephanie Brown's story before to see why she has such a huge fan base and what makes her a great character. And what we're doing with her, I think, is really exciting and very fitting to who she is. But it's very rooted in the core plot of the series. So I can't hit about it just yet. So the so so okay, so let's let's talk uh Tim Drake first. So Yes, we've been saying for a long, long time that Tim Drake has been extremely disconnected from the Bat books. Um, that's part of the reason why on the Point Five cast we started reviewing Teen Titans, just because that was pretty much the only way we were ever going to hear or learn anything about Tim Drake in this new 52 universe, was by following Teen Titans, because he, if he ever appeared, it was in a one-page cameo, and that was it. Um, you know, he rarely had appearances. I mean, I think the, the biggest appearance he had within the Batman universe was in Death of the Family. And it was during, it was when Red Hood and Teen Titans was crossing over amongst itself during Death of the Family. And both stories were focusing on Jason Todd and Tim Drake at the same time. So, I mean, yes, I'm glad that, you know, that's, you know, one of his, he's saying that one of his goals is to bring him into the core Bat family because he hasn't been and he's been outside of it for, you know, since the new 52. So I'm super glad that he's, you know, that's one of his goals is to make sure to bring these characters back. And, you know, as long as it's done well, I, you know, I won't have any problems. You know, I, I don't know exactly when, when, when Tinian says a Gotham style story, I'm curious to know what exactly he's referencing. Because when you look at Talon, Talon is not really a Gotham style story. Talon was a story that was modeled off of Scott Snyder's run on Court of Owls, or on Batman during the Court of Owls storyline. And then if you look at 
And then if you look at uh, his other his other uh, title, Red Hood and the Outlaws, that's even even much further outside of a Gotham style story because that book has little to do with anything in Gotham outside of just Jason Todd being there. So it'll be interesting to see what he does. Now he has done a really good job with some of the backups, and you know if if they're in that similar style that he wrote those books or those stories, I'm all for it. Yeah, I very much wait and see with this because uh, I'm bored of being promised things which aren't delivered. So hopefully we'll get a great characterization and you know that will lead to him becoming more involved in the Batman universe as a whole and not just this title. But we'll wait and see. Uh, Tim, poor Tim. If you, re- <laughs> if you remember way back when I had this great argument with uh, Josh Bertoni about, you know, that pati- what was it? Number zero, it must have been. Yes. And, um, you know, I still, I feel a little bit bad about it because I broke Donovan's heart a little bit. But uh, you, I think that a good characterization in the New 52 uh, is really coming for Tim, and, and I hope it, it, he needs it, and I hope that it is there. I honestly, I don't know. I, I feel like it's still not going to be the Tim Drake that everyone knows and loves from, from pre-New 52, but just like Joe, I guess, you know, we have to wait and see, but we shouldn't really put all our hopes on this potential promise because people lie. All right. So then let's talk about Stephanie Brown. So, you know, he specifically, and he said this before when he mentioned Stephanie Brown coming to the series and she was going to play a specific role in the series. And honestly, I have to wonder what role she's going to play in the series. And that's what DC said. Yeah, green light, you know, go ahead. You can bring Stephanie Brown because she fits that role perfectly. Because honestly, I honestly, everything, the the characterization of Stephanie Brown pre-New 52 is part of the reason she had such a huge fan base. Um, she, now, obviously, this character's been around for a while, so I'm not saying that just her as Batgirl is the only reason she has a fan base. Mm-hmm. But that's a big part of the reason she has such a big fan base currently is because a lot of people really like the Batgirl series. Now, if you look at the characterization of Stephanie Brown in Batgirl, written by Brian Q. Miller, Tinian has not done anything even remotely close to what Miller did with Batgirl. So I can't even comprehend what they're going to do. Obviously, they haven't said that she's going to be Batgirl. They did say, I think it was said at some point that she is going to be spoiler, but I don't think it was officially on record or whatever. But if she's going to be spoiler, fine. But a lot of people seem to forget that when she was spoiler, she was not the character that she was when she was Batgirl. Mm-hmm. So a lot, you know, you know, I have real high doubts as to what exactly they're going to do with this character because the reason her fan base has been so, you know, I can't put it any other way. The reason her fan base has been so rabid and has been making sure to point out to DC every convention that wears this character is because of her time as Batgirl. The character was a very, very different character when she was Batgirl compared to when she was spoiler. Putting her back in the spoiler costume and then possibly keeping the characterization that was done before the New 52 when she was Batgirl, it's not necessarily going to work. Introducing a whole new generation, it's not even been three years. So maybe you're introducing a whole new group of readers, but I don't like that comment of, we're introducing a whole new generation and we want to build her fan base and triple it. 
And I'm just thinking, yes, but how many people from her original fan base are going to be upset about what you're doing with her? Because it's not going to be what they're expecting, which is what everyone has been asking for since the New 52. Let me first say that, Dustin, next time you read like a quote, though, that has excitement in it, you can't do it all mon- monotone. The time is now. The time is now. It was, it was very funny. Um, you got to be excited about it. You know, the time is now. I'm sure is Snyder it, was. I don't, it, I don't Is it really? <laughs> oh. Uh, yes. My monotone voice is me projecting my my uh, my pessimistic attitude towards this possibility of this character coming. Okay, well, this is what I said last time we talked about it, people, um, and, and I said it even on my own show is the fact that the the Stephanie Brown that we're going to get is definitely not going to be the one that that people love. Uh, and if Tinian is sort of this protege of Snyder, and Snyder's this kind of darker guy, then the spoiler that we're going to get is not going to be this really optimistic and bubbly Stephanie Brown. Um, Oh my gosh. No, just the, the fact that she's being brought back for an explicit purpose makes me wonder if they're going to kill her off at some point, like have this storyline, but at the end, she's going to have to sacrifice herself so that the fans got her back. We got our wish, but she's also, then she's killed. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm getting increasingly worried. I, I just think that, you know, it's great that she's back, but be careful what you wish for because this isn't what it was. Um, and you know, I do wonder like, what Brian Q. Miller thought when it all when it all hit. Um, I'm sorry that he wasn't offered the job because I think that would have been the the way to go. But I think it just comes down to it depends on what they're trying to do. Yeah, you know if they're bringing her in to be that bubbly character, that's fine. But she's going to be like so outside of everybody else because everybody in this new Fifty Two is the complete opposite of what she was pre New Fifty Two. Everybody is you know basically. A, depressing you know they're 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 violent you know they're the complete opposite of what she was so i mean like if the whole point of bringing her in is to try to lighten situations okay you know that might work but how well is she really going to get along with everybody else if that's the way she's going to be so the other thing is if they're going to introduce her to this whole new generation of people as they're saying that means at some point they're going to have to explain where she came from, which means they could change everything about her. So, I mean, I think the problem is that a lot of people, you know, including myself, I'm really, I'm really excited about the fact that she's going to come back. But at the same point, I am extremely hesitant because I don't think, as Stella said, I don't think it's going to be anything like what we're expecting. And I think a lot of people are going to be even more upset. It'll almost be like, yeah, honestly, I bet there will be people out there who will say, you know, I wish they didn't touch this character. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's that's what's going to probably happen. Because isn't that what happened to Cass? Like, she was gone for maybe a slight amount of time that she came back, but she was not at all the the person. Yep. That- Cass uh, disappeared from uh, her, her Batgirl series ended. Mm-hmm. That was like back in 2007 or 2008. And then shortly thereafter, she disappeared for a while, was not appearing in any books, and then it was like a year and a half later after her series ended that they released that uh, that Batgirl miniseries by Adam Beechin, which, uh, if a lot of people remember Comic Cast from back then, Josh Bertoni was saying to use that as toilet paper <laughs> for how bad it was. But uh, that, that and she was basically turned into a, the complete, she was, wasn't necessarily like 
the complete opposite of what she was because she was never a bubbly character to begin with. Mm-hmm. But they basically took her and turned her completely around. And then s- stemming from that miniseries, they took it, they took her and put her as part of the uh, Batman and Outsiders team. And when she was part of the Batman Outsiders team, she was still that weird, you know, torn person that was in that miniseries. And a lot of, and that's just what they used for a while. And then she just disappeared off the face of the earth and then reappeared in the pages of Batman Incorporated briefly. And then in the, the beginning of the Batgirl series pre new 52. So, I mean, like, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's like, you know, they're, they don't have a very good track record of having characters that disappear for a while and then bringing them back in the right ways. It always seems like they'll bring them back. They'll have mistakes and then they'll try to fix them as time goes on. Yeah, uh, going back to what you said about bringing some fun into the DC Universe, that would definitely be appreciated because, uh, like you said, every character seems to be dark and depressed. Um, and it kind of works as, uh, Stella, I'm sure, will back up with Damien in, uh, in the Batgirl series. She kind of took him under her wing and, mm-hmm. and kind of sort of showed him some of the lighter side to crime fighting and stuff like that. So I think it, could work but it depends again on like you said what characterization we get of the character and and whether that will sit with the rest of the dcu but uh hopefully you know some fun will be injected soon all right so that is actually all the news we have not that much news over the last couple weeks um but we do have some books to cover including an annual that was released and that's part of the reason why it's been three weeks since we've had a new episode the very first book we're going to jump into is batman the dark knight number 24 Great thing about being a shapeshifter. I can blend in with the crowd outside, make my getaway, and rip off some other joint. Batman the Dark Knight 24, Captive Audience. Writer Greg Hurwitz, artist and cover Alex Maleev, and colorist Dave McCraig. Clayface begins his story by explaining the jobs that he did were more about being seen rather than what he was doing. His neighbor in Arkham Asylum praises him for being a versatile actor, and together they recite many lines from the terror. It is a happy time indeed. This makes Clayface quite pleased, raises his spirits, until he sees his reflection in the fear mirror. I had no idea what this was. Attached to Scarecrow's face, and, well, he sees himself when he was normal way back when. So then flashback. When he was younger, no one noticed poor Basil. He tried the right clothes, he tried out for a play, but there was just really nothing special about him. Even as he became older, he was rejected for acting parts. He heard of a magic man in Gotham who could give anything. After he passed some weird S&M room, it was very strange, Basil comes to Penguin, who happens to be the magic man. He gives Basil something excavated decades ago from a Navajo reservation. We have suddenly turned into Smallville. A soil sample from a secret underground grotto that may have been the source of power for some skinwalkers who could change into any form or shape that they wanted. Penguin is not looking for money, but he'll think of something. At home, the clay substance seeps into Basil's nostrils, works through his veins, and becomes him. He could make his face mirror the world around him or express his state of mind with clarity. He practiced and practiced, finally being cast in the terror and no longer being ignored. He became the characters and was finally noticed. Uh, 
Soon he discovered that the clay was organic and it evolved as he did, absorbing the DNA profile of anyone he touched and housing those profiles within him so he could recall them at any given time. Soon Penguin called upon him, and he did what was asked of him. But soon the pressure of fame and work was too much, and he was not able to hold himself together for too long. So again, he became ignored. He again did not exist until he met his neighbor, but alas, his neighbor dies. That's sad, yeah. Joe's really sad. Um, (laughs) Basil is depressed for a couple of days Then realizes that he still has his abilities to act And so he decides to get attention that way So he pretends to choke And at the same time as he's choking He's also spitting out pieces of clay And then two physicians clear his windpipe In sort of this containment field Where just their hands are reaching through You know how they deal with dangerous um, substances And stuff in movies Like in that monkey movie. What was that monkey movie called? It wasn't 12 Monkeys, but the other one. Uh, the physicians leave, and we see a bit of what Clayface was spitting up, and it, it has made its way through a crack, which makes good on the threat of a pinhole breach that was mentioned twice before in the issue, and uh, basically sits back and smiles, and we know that something's going to happen soon. And next, we have Clayface on the loose. I felt like I was just reading a little storybook to people. I actually really enjoyed this issue. Um, so let's see here. The first thing, the DNA. So we had seen this a while back, I think, when we first saw him in the New 52. And we were wondering what was going on, especially with his, you know, turning into Bruce Wayne and everything. And I feel like the majority of us were sort of put off by it. So now that it is explained, do you better like this power do you think that they should have better explained it sooner? Or do you think that it worked the, this way, that they delayed it, and then they had a Clayface-centric issue, and then talked about his DNA capturing per, uh, power? See, I think the thing is that, you know, when, when, it, when we first saw Clayface, it was in that two-issue story that Scott Snyder did right after Death of the Family and before Zero Year started. And, you know, the, that was the DNA thing. That's where the, it was referenced, and... At the time, I, I was one of those people who sat there and said, you know, this, this is kind of a little bit far-fetched and a little bit more extreme to his power set than what he had pre-New 52. So, to me, this does actually work a little bit better. I mean, like, obviously, there's, you know, you have to go pretty far back to know the origin of Clayface, Basil Carlo, in the comics. Because it was a while ago, and they really haven't done a whole lot with Basil Carlo, um, you know, recently within the last uh, 15, 20 years, if that. I mean, there's been other clay faces. There was the whole mud pack at one point. There was Matt Hagen. So, I mean, like, there has been other clay faces, but Basil Carlo has been a character that they really haven't done anything with. So they're just, again, going back to the classic version of the character. And this way, they explain it. So, you know, I'm okay with the idea of him, of his his origin, basically, being this clay stuff or whatever, but specifically the fact that it slowly evolves as he evolves, as he starts to be able to control it, you know, it evolves with him. And that's why he's able to, you know, basically clone their DNA and to become who they are. Because that's just what happens, because it just keeps progressing and progressing and eventually just gets out of control. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I thought it was a little uh, strange, but 
when you think about it, Clayface kind of is one of the stranger villains of the Batman universe, where everyone else, not based in realism as much, but they kind of, they're not as super powered, whereas Clayface has always kind of been a bit out there in that regard. So for a new 52 origin, um, you know, it definitely makes more sense and it goes with Snyder's thing. And I do like the fact that, like uh, Dustin was mentioning, how it evolves and it wasn't just a all-in-one kind of thing. So I like that aspect. I, I'm i so glad that they explained it because when I, I remember it was, you know, that Bruce Wayne, it was a murderer, but, you know, he was a criminal and we were just all like, what is this? What is this? I, I, I'm glad that they finally explained it. And, you know, for on the one hand, I'm sad that it took so long because I think at that moment would have been the time to explain, like, what is going on. Uh, so, you know, we wait five issues, maybe more, to figure it out. But at the same time, this is his origin issue. So I think it, maybe it would have been a little random to throw it in there when that wasn't his origin issue so long ago. I It's an okay power. I don't know if I agree with you guys as much about, you know, this evolution. I think it's it would have been great if... Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to be like a hypocrite now, but I think that, yes, he you know, should evolve, but maybe not this DNA business because I think that relies more on the power rather than his ability to be an actor because the whole thing about this particular Clayface is his acting abilities, and I think just being able to touch someone and then become that person is just sort of a letdown because I think him and his strength was being really able to take on that personality and mimic them by his own force of will and power rather than just some some sort of... uh well, this strange Navajo mud. It doesn't necessarily take away from that, though, because it's still... I mean, as much as he can look like someone, I guess he still has to act like them. But uh, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, my second one is, how did you like the origin in general? Of course, you know, we go little by little with uh, different people. I, I wonder if this is like the fourth or the fifth. Of course, we have Penguin and Mr. Freeze and Scarecrow. Um how, how did you like this origin? You know, as far as origins go, when the New 52, I think this was actually done well. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of started talking about it. Didn't want to bring it up too much, uh, you know, when we were talking about the DNA. But I think that overall, I think it was done pretty well. I think that, you know, outside of the idea of, you know, okay, well, let me put it this way. The character does not, I mean, outside of the DNA thing. It doesn't really have any other powers that it didn't have before. So, I mean, it's not like we, we're getting this character to an extreme. It's also that this character didn't have a horrible childhood. You know, he, I mean, they basically flashed through his childhood and, you know, it's not that he was beat up. It's not that his parents were abusive. You know, yeah, maybe his parents didn't have a ton of money, but, you know, there's not a ton of kids out there whose parents have a ton of money. But even though his parents didn't have a ton of money, his mom still scraped money by for him to try to, get the leather jacket so that he could be a mm-hmm. cool kid and it just didn't work. You know, he just, he, he was unnoticed. And honestly, that's in some cases that probably is worse than being bullied. I mean, as much as there is this big push about, you know, being bullies and how horrible it is, there's kids out there who get absolutely no attention in any way, shape or form. And that's not necessarily a good thing either. I will say that, you know, we've seen this in a number of different books, how for some reason adults, in these in the DC universe, just absolutely are mean to children. We've seen we saw this with uh, you know I hate to bring it up, but we saw it with Ventriloquist <laughs> when we saw her origin. 
Uh, but you know, he, he sits there and he tries out for the school play and that teacher is just basically like, listen, you're no good. You're never going to be anything. You're nothing special. Th- th- what teacher would do that? I mean, like realistically, if the kid went home and said something to his parents, his parents could go back to the school and the school might have to ha- suspend the teacher for doing something like that. That's as bad as bullying a kid. You can't tell a kid you're nobody special. Just give it up. Like, what teacher does that? Do you think it was a teacher? Because it looked like the same group of people that judged him later on. I felt like maybe it was a community theater thing. No, I well, what I felt it was, was it was originally the school doing that initially. And then later on, there was a group of people that was that was basically mirroring the same people that he had in school. But now it was community theater. Oh, okay. And then I think it was again mirroring it later when he was trying out for a movie and then they hired him. But I think it was just a mirror of the same people, the same three people showing how, you know, things didn't change until after he took this Navajo mud. But overall, I think the origin story works. You know, the other thing that's interesting is outside of him being some horrible, uh, Bruce Wayne, uh, Wayne Enterprises employee who happens to have horrible things happen to him. And then, you know, he's hell bent on destroying Wayne Enterprises and Gotham City because of some horrible accident, as we've seen with so many of these other characters. Outside of that, it worked extremely well. I'm glad that it's not super realistic that they're using these a little bit. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the supernatural stuff, but this is okay. You know, this isn't like going above and beyond. This is, ex- this is a way to explain something that, realistically doesn't make a lot of sense instead of chucking out a bunch of you know weird science stuff to try to make it work they're just decided to opt for the supernatural stuff and say you know it's it has elements that are from the navajo tribes who used to possibly be skinwalkers Mm -hmm. or whatever you know they're using this mystical element and i think that's cool i think you know it, it explains it well i agree i think it's definitely one of the most relatable um, origins, especially by uh, Hurwitz, but I think probably overall um, I, I think that it was maybe told a bit quick uh, I don't, I would definitely wouldn't want to see it dragged out, but I guess that there was kind of um, a frame around this story where like, it, it might have been interesting to have a whole issue of this, just because it felt a bit quick, where he kind of just it's kind of throwaway line of, uh, you know, I didn't like the bloodshed at first, but after a while I got used to it. And that kind of explained how, like, it never really delved into, like, his first kill or something like that, which might have been a bit, uh, something to focus on, just because it was kind of like, I mean, I think we're going to talk about Penguin next, but I think that kind of made sense and, and how he kind of fell into crime. But I think it could have been, uh, developed a bit more, um, but yeah, as for like the childhood and stuff and, and the growing up, I definitely think that that was a good origin. It made sense. And like I said, it was kind of, it's quite relatable. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I thought this was one of the, the better origins that we've gotten for, for a villain. And it didn't go down the same trope that we've seen before of this, um, this terrible childhood related to his parents somehow. I, he had a bad childhood, but I think it was more, um, socially rather than all of this other stuff going on because he did seem to have loving parents. I mean, his father wasn't as supportive, but I'd say that that may have been like more of a normal father. His mother, you know, tried the best she could and, and tried to help him out and everything. But I think all of us perhaps may have felt this way, especially those that 
get into theater. Like I certainly have felt, you know, really I can come alive in theater and, and be who I am. And that's really when you're noticed. So certainly struck a chord there. And I just loved, I was actually okay. I thought that this was well paced. I think maybe, well, maybe it could have been longer. I think that dragging out two issues, I don't know if there would have been enough substance um, for his origin personally. And I love just delving into his really getting more involved with acting and, and how his powers helped him out and becoming those characters and everything. I really enjoyed seeing that. And, and I think he, he liked, I think that, that this was just talking about the character that that's what his focus was in life. And the penguin thing for me, just not, not talking more about the, the killings and what he had to do there really spoke more about the character because he got the powers from the, you know, the quote, the magic man, because he wanted to be somebody and he wanted to be an actor at that point in time. And this was just something that he had to do for Penguin in order to give him his thanks and he owed him and everything. So I can see, I feel like there's a good reason why they didn't do that. Um, but but I, I do get what you're saying about that, Joe. So my last question is Penguin, Penguin being involved in his origin. Uh, how do you How do you feel about it? You know, one of the things we've always complained about is how much they've overused Penguin <laughs> since the New 52. Yeah. But this is one situation where I, I'm okay with it. You know, the, the, the explanation of, you know, Penguin basically helping out whoever, it doesn't matter who, basically helping out somebody so that in turn that person owes him, it's completely understandable. You know, honestly, where is Basil Carlo, struggling actor or struggling artist or whatever, where is he really going to come up with this Navajo mud stuff unless it's some from somebody that's like way up there in the food chain? Penguin's way up there. You know, Penguin, you know, who knows if he knew any idea, if he had any idea what it was actually going to do. That might be a whole other story in of itself. But I think that, you know, Penguin being the person who he is, having the uh, the resources to get all kinds of weird things he would be the person you would, if you were really like down and you needed to get something that you really wanted, he would probably be the one person you turn to. Kind of like what people do with loan sharks, but penguins a little bit more, you know, higher end, you know, than a loan shark. So I think that it worked fine. And, you know, the fact that penguin in turn was the reason why Basil had to become this murderous creature is another good reason because, I mean, if anything, if you're going to tie the character to anybody in Gotham, anybody who's already established, I think Penguin would make the most sense because he's been around for a good chunk of time, so he could exist way, you know, he could have his whole crime ring existing way before a lot of these characters have popped up because he was just on the low end. You know, a lot of the times we see Penguin, he's just involved behind the scenes stuff. It's not like he's getting his own hands dirty most of the time. So, I mean, like, it works, and I think, you know, as much as I've complained about Penguin being in a lot of the, the books, I think that this is one of the times it works well. Plus, they didn't overuse them that much. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that um, some writers know how to use him, others don't. And I think Horowitz, for the most part, I've enjoyed his use of the Penguin, and I think this was another example of Penguin in a realistic uh, environment of him, you know, being that guy who, who doesn't do the physical stuff because, you know, he's not really adept at that and using his kind of power as, as in 
you know, he's like high up in crime and stuff. And I, I've always, I've enjoyed that aspect of his character, you know, throughout the new 52. So it's kind of another example of that, but I, I enjoyed it. I think that how it's uses that well. I, I think it's funny just that he's got his finger in all sorts of things. And I too, I wasn't as bothered with his appearance here. Maybe it's because it's, it seems like it's been a long time since we, well, I shouldn't say a long time, but it's been, it's been a little while since we've seen him. And it is interesting that it, it's almost as if he is, um, the king of the, almost like the underworld there. Um, well, I shouldn't say underworld, but like the Gotham underworld, if we think of it that way, and that he, he would know where to get such a thing and help people out. And then he uses those people for his own um, gain. And I wonder if this is going to, how this will affect um, the stories going forward, especially since we saw who was recently put into jail and then his neighbor was. Oh, it was uh, Wraith. Yes. So I almost wonder if there's going to be like a war. I guess maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, imagine that we'll have a war after we've had all of this stuff going on with uh, the evil, evil stuff. Uh, but if Ogilvy in his jail cell is gathering an army and then Penguin, just by virtue of him giving stuff to other people and having them under his umbrella because they owe him something if there's going to be a battle between the two of them that would that would actually be a cool storyline i think but uh, yeah just like uh these two guys i i was not bothered as much by penguin having his finger in this origin i think if if we would have seen more of him than we did it would have bothered me but it was just a few pages just setting it up but it really did focus on Quayface here which i think was the main point all right so batman the dark knight number 24 i'm going to give a total of four out of five batterings I'll give it three and a half out of five best rings. This was actually a really good month, people. Well, I, sh- I should say really good uh, three weeks, so you should be expecting some higher grades from me. I'm also going to give it four out of five batterings. Or And over on the website, Derek gave the book three and a half out of five batterings. So that's going to give Batman the Dark Knight number 24 a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Nightwing, annual number one. Maybe you didn't get the memo, Oracle. But I've been going by Nightwing for, oh, about a decade or so. Nightwing Annual Number 1, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Jason Masters. Uh, the issue starts off with someone who is seemingly tied up, who's being called Ted, and this person is basically being set, or basically his apartment's being soaked in gasoline by Firefly, and Firefly lights a match, burns him to a crisp, and leaves. Meanwhile, on in Old Gotham, Dick Grayson's soon-to-be former loft, he is packing up boxes with Barbara Gordon. Uh, they're discussing a number of events, including a picture that Dick finds of the two of them as Robin and Batgirl, as uh, Batgirl kisses Robin. Um, they talk about that, amongst a number of other things about current events, such as all the events that have, are, that have been happening in the pages of Batgirl, and as well as Dick moving to Chicago, as has already happened in the pages of Nightwing, when all of a sudden the bat signal appears. Uh, Night, uh, Dick says to Barbara, come on, you should join me. And he said, she says, no, it's that's not a good idea. You know, the GCPD is uh, trying to track me down right now. And he goes, well, then, you know, why don't you just, you know, not be back row then and uh, do what you need to do so you can go with me. Um, then we 
get to GCPD headquarters where Bullock is telling Dick Grayson about the fire and about who was killed. It was Ted Carson, who happens to be the ex-boyfriend of a prominent, uh, prominent entertainment person named Cindy Cook. Uh, Barbara Gordon, dressed as her weird ski mask wearing person, and Nightwing go to Cindy Cook's penthouse and talk to her. She's kind of upset about the fact that uh, her ex-boyfriend was killed, and she's convinced that the person who is who did this was Garfield Linz. Garfield Linz is a pyrotechnic expert who has who has worked on some of her films, um, but uh, she's really torn up about this, and it's seemingly portraying her her problems with the relationship that she had with her ex-boyfriend are sort of mirroring the problems that Barbara and Dick have had recently. Uh, then, on the other side of Gotham, at a filming for a new movie called Sword Walkers 3, The Reckoning, uh, we see a director getting pretty ticked about the fact that he has people in his trailer. As it turns out, it's uh, Nightwing and uh, Ski Mask Barbara. Uh, and they say they want to know the information that they need to know about where Garfield Linz would be, and he says he has no idea, but he does know where one of his workshops are. Later, at Garfield Linz Loft, uh, the two of them are looking around, and they happen to find a note that basically lists a number of different places that have already been hit by Firefly, and the last one that's not crossed off is the Willowbrook Charity Dinner. So, what happens, Nightwing tells Bullock, and Bullock gets pretty much all the SWAT and snipers available to this charity dinner, and in turn, they realize, Nightwing realizes, wait, this is a giant mistake, everyone's here, that means no one's watching her penthouse. At the penthouse, Firefly's already there, he's uh, attacking Cindy Cook, um, he basically, after a brief tussle with Nightwing and Ski Mask Barbara, uh, it's believed that... Uh, he has killed Cindy Cook, but it's actually not the case. It turns out that this is one of, this is Cindy's agent. Um, as it turns out, they deduce from this situation that, uh, Cindy Cook was taken by Firefly. Uh, back at the docks, we find out that Firefly is not Garfield Linz. It's actually Ted Carson, who we thought was murdered at the beginning of the issue. As it turns out, Ted Carson used Garfield Linz to basically create this situation so that the two of them could leave and be together. Um, he destroyed everything that she had, specifically because those were the things standing in the way of them having a relationship. Um, she's pretty ticked about this and says, you know, why would you think that I would want to go with you after all of this? He gets pretty ticked, is about to do something bad when Nightwing and Ski Mask Barber show oh up. God. And they... Uh, Make pretty quick use. Uh, it's a pretty quick fight scene where they, the two of them fight him and, uh, he gets beat up underwater and, uh, the boat that was on the dock falls into the Gotham Harbor in flames. Later, after the police show up, uh, there's a little bit more mirroring of the relationship between Barbara and Dick, uh, when Cindy Cook is talking about Ted. Um, later, Nightwing and Barbara are talking about, uh, the fact that uh, earlier Dick mentioned, you know, maybe you should come with me to Chicago. And she was kind of hesitant, but now she says, but, you know, maybe this could work, but uh, this isn't the right time because, you know, it's just we, we have to figure something out with everything that's been going on with 
Ricky being in a coma. I just need to figure this out. So Dick says, you know, I understand. And then they said, uh, for some reason, Ski Mask Barbara has to take off because I guess she's got better things to do. And they say that they're going to meet each other tomorrow morning. The next day, Barbara shows up to the apartment to find it completely empty and Dick not there. Hmm. Dick's on the road. He's driving a moving truck towards Chicago. Uh, Barbara calls him and says, uh, you know, I thought you got, I guess you got up early. Um, she basically says, I can't leave and you can't stay. So we both know how this is going to, this conversation is going to go. Uh, basically leaving their relationship completely open ended as far as what could possibly happen in the future. Dick glances down at the, uh, Robin and Backrow, uh, photo of Backrow kissing Robin. Then we get a flashback of the actual scene where this happened, where Dick Grayson is seemingly wearing, uh, Tim Drake's, uh, outfit from, uh, the 90s, and Batgirl is wearing a outfit that does not look like anything she's ever worn, um, and the two of them are beating up some guys, and they just happen to come across a camera, and they decide to take a picture as uh, they discuss that this is one of their first dates, and uh, they rate it, and they said it's almost worth an eight. So, is that the end? Well, according to the end, it says not the end. All right, Nightwing Annual number one. So this was kind of interesting because again, Kyle Higgins does d- tells a story that involves Barbara Gordon in in seemingly a different way than we are seeing Barbara Gordon being portrayed in the pages of her own book. Now, not to, not to say that this is not the character. There's obviously the, they reference a ton of the stuff that's been happening in the Batgirl series with the specific references to Ricky being shot by Commissioner Gordon, uh, the, the mention of the fact that her brother died, the fact that the GCPD's after her, and the fact that she's walking around a ski mask Barbara. So the question is, the character herself, not necessarily all of the mentions of all of the other events going on, Do you? how do you feel the characterization of Barbara was in here compared to what we've seen in the pages of Batgirl? I think that she was a much better put together character in here. Um, I feel like at Batgirl, at any given moment, she could break down or she could just have this, she could run into this like wild emo moment and say, I hate the world. I hate my father. But here she's, uh, and, and almost she's separated from everything because just the way she sort of prattles off the issues, um, with zero emotion, uh, I don't know if this is just, She's going through her stages of grief, and now she's okay with it. But I'm glad that she doesn't break down when she says that her boyfriend, which I still don't know why she calls him her boyfriend, is in a coma and then all of this other stuff. But it seems like she's finally reached this um, this ability to deal with her issues. And she still has some problems, but I, I think that overall it seems like this character is is more put together. And even though... She doesn't want to go around and decides to do her ski mask, like Ski Mask Barbara. I guess that's her her new nickname given to us by Dustin. Um, you know, she she is able to go along with Nightwing. He just does convince her to come along with her, and I think the Batgirl over and Batgirl probably would have not have any of that and just sulked around. So overall, I would say that this characterization was probably better than what we have seen in Batgirl. Yeah, she seemed to be having fun. When she was kind of out doing her thing, um, she still, while she didn't do it, she still threatened to break someone's face. Um, <laughs> so I guess that she didn't act upon it, so that's an improvement. 
but it still felt a bit over violent. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as for comparison, I mean, I enjoyed her characterization more in this than I did in, or than I do in Batgirl, but, um, I'm not really sure how to compare the two. All right. So then the other thing I want to talk about with this episode was the, the idea, well, we kind of get, I guess, an origin for Firefly, um, but I'm not sure how much this character is going to exist since it's not Garfield Linz, it's this character, Ted Carson. So I guess my question is, what did you think of Firefly and this different origin? It's not really necessarily an origin. They basically, it was the same as Garfield Linz's origin throughout the entire story up until it was revealed it wasn't actually Garfield Linz. So what was your thoughts about that? Um, upon seeing the character, I was kind of like, oh, I hope this is Firefly because we don't need another new, another new villain when this is so similar to a pre-existing one. Uh, so I was happy. And then at the end, it's like, ah, all of you who thought it was this guy, it's not. So that kind of made me go, oh. But um, I don't know. I mean, it ended up being interesting, I guess, in terms of the story. But uh, it kind of felt like we lost out on getting, not necessarily, well, I was going to say classic, but I've forgotten what we rated them on uh, the TBU villain wall. Check it out. Um, so, but yeah, uh, interesting, I guess. But I mean, it's, it's strange because it's kind of like it wasn't really anything new, and it was kind of so close to being the character that we know that it kind of, yeah, it was a bit of a letdown when it wasn't <laughs> in the end of it. I really like Firefly, um, especially because, I mean, Batgirl Year One, I really, I really liked his portrayal there. And I thought it was, it was following so closely. I'm like, yes, this is definitely what it is and, and all of this crazy stuff. And then number one, I am a little sad that, you know, it really wasn't Garfield Lens, but I was just thrown for a loop. And just like I remember Dustin said, you know, if you can, if you can throw me off on, on what happened, cause I remember he said that about, um, now you see me. Um, that that's like an awesome thing. And I, I didn't see it coming that he was not Garfield Lins. I thought it was a little strange that that little hit list had Garfield Lins's name down. I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Why is he crossing that off? But I, I still didn't see it coming. So for that, I'd say, I'd say kudos. What doesn't make even more sense about that weird list is the fact that the list was designed to throw them off. It was designed to specifically throw those, the, you know, whoever was looking for him off by sending them all to the charity ball. But then why was Garfield Lynn's name on the list? Because it was believed that Ted Carson's name should have been on that list. So to me, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I don't really have a whole lot of, I don't really have anything else to really discuss. I mean, the relationship between, well, I guess we'll just talk about that. I mean, the relationship between Barbara and Dick, you know, what did you guys think of that as a whole? I mean, the entire issue is really more of them working as a team, them, you know, discussing the possibility of uh, Batgirl moving, which at the time when, when Dick brought it up, I actually thought, well, that could actually be pretty interesting to see what would happen if she left Gotham and was, you know, outside of all of this mm-hmm. stuff that's been happening. So, um, what did you think of the relationship of how it was portrayed and, you know, do you think there actually will be anything or is this just something that maybe, you know, when Nightwing Annual number two comes up, 
Kyle Higgins will pick it back up. I liked it. Um, I actually got a little excited when he was saying, come on, Barbara, let's move to Chicago together. Um, foolishly, I know, because I'm sure Gail Simone wouldn't let that happen, nor probably with the editorial. So uh, I don't quite know why I thought that. But, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think it was an interesting exploration into their relationship, uh, something that hasn't... It's been touched on, but not really in depth. And this was kind of... Uh, yeah, put a bit more light on it and kind of explored it a little more, a little more, uh, which I I enjoyed. I like, yeah. Um, well, there are two things here. First, I'm going to argue with something that you uh, you stated in your recap, which was um, the way you you sort of phrased it is that they were both at an impasse and they thought there was really no good time for it, but they were going to meet in the morning. But what I gathered from it is that she, she did say that, but then she said, I think we just need to, we just need to do it because there's never going to be a good time. So let's, let's do it. And then he's the one who said, well, let's talk about it in the morning. Uh, and then he leaves, which was a complete cop out. So I feel like she was almost, she was ready to actually take that leap because she recognized that there's no, there's no good time, and really, if you just let time dictate it, it's never going to happen. And she was ready to take that leap, but then he, because I think he was influenced by um, by what had happened, he basically ran off scared, which has happened before. This sort of mirrors the other Nightwing annual, when he slept with Barbara Gordon on the eve of his wedding to Corey. Um, I actually, you know what, if she would have moved to Gotham, now, number one, it seemed a little forced because she has a quote boyfriend end quote, and she's actually considering this business. I think if they, if that, if Ricky wasn't in the picture at all, it would have been a little better writing wise, but that is totally the move she should have made. Maybe not get into a relationship. I mean, how's that going to work anyways? Was he going to bring her into the apartment with the two other people that he's currently living with? Where is she going to live? Uh, but she does need to get out of Gotham because all of this stuff that's going on is, is really, I think, dragging her down. And I think her father would potentially be really upset about it, but he would also understand why it would happen. Like, it would make sense for the character to leave Gotham and go somewhere else to start over with all the garbage that's been going on in her life. Um, there was something else. I guess something I forgot to say about the characterization was I didn't really like the line she said about, um, she said to Nightwing, why are you even listening to or helping Bruce anyways? Like this very offline. And again, we're just being pulled back to this death of the family. And we still don't understand why people are so angry with Batman. Uh, but that was, I guess, a random comment. But in general, you know, I think it could have worked. It could have worked. I, it's open farther down the road. I feel like Dan DiDio doesn't really want these two characters to be together, in my opinion. I mean, he wants Nightwing to die all the time. He doesn't want people to have happy lives, as far as we can tell. So it's open, but I don't know if it's if it's going to happen in the future, sadly. All right, so Nightwing Annual number one, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five bad ranks. I actually really like this. Um, it was strange with the two inkers because it kind of made the art uh, inconsistent. But um, I, I enjoyed the art for the most part as well. And yeah, I actually enjoyed the story. So I'll give this four and a half. Out of five oh bad wow, ranks. four and a half. Yeah, I think I'm going to go between the two and say four out of five. 
Alright, so that's going to give Nightwing Annual number 1 a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman Robin number 24. There's just one problem. What's that? You're talking to the wrong Harvey. Batman and Robin number 24, which happens to be Batman and Two-Face. The Big Burn, First Strike. Writer, Peter J. Tomasi. Pencilor, Patrick Gleason. Inker, Mick Gray. And colorist, John Colitz. A fly. Lands on a sleeping face. Flies past a picture of a woman. A single bullet. (laughs) A single bullet and two guns. Lands on an open die. Two-Face wakes up. He flips a coin. Loads a gun. And uh, with a single bullet, mind you. And pulls the trigger. Better luck next time. Cut to Batman interrogating people all over the place. Only asking, where is it? When is it? Please note that this most likely has to do with the meeting that is about to take place this issue. Bruce Wayne then takes a shower. Alfred washes a gravestone, which I've actually never seen anyone do before in my life. Gordon shaves, and he then gets some info on some woman named Erin McKillen. Meanwhile, McKillen lands in Gotham, meets her cousin, and checks to be sure that Dent and Batman will be out of the way while this secret meeting is taking place. Alfred is about to fill the graves left empty by Talia and Damon, since apparently... Raish or Roz, took the bodies, as far as Batman knows. Uh, after Batman figures out what the Gotham families are up to, he will put all of his attention towards Roz. At the crime family meeting, a man explains that it is time to cut out the maniacal tumors which weaken the city. They will begin with Two-Face, since he has hurt the group the most as both of his personalities, so both District Attorney Dent and Two-Face. Aaron's going to be the one to draw him out, proving her worth and bringing her more into the fold, since she's been running up operations over in Ireland. Back wherever she's lodging, she gets rid of some uh, some frustration that she has uh, by punching a man that happens to be strapped to a punching bag. So it's almost the reverse of Die Another Day, if you remember that movie. Suddenly, the GCPD bursts in. Aaron drops down a hatch onto a motorcycle. She drives that motorcycle into the river, and then she starts swimming away. Batman and Two-Face as he robs a bank, in fact, watched the news with interest about Aaron. Flashback to a time when Dent was actually Dent. He is knocked out and tied up, and his wife Gilda is dead. Aaron McKillen wants him to apologize for throwing her and the family to the wolves before she kills him, but she doesn't exactly get the apology, and she pours some acid on his face and leaves. He picks, or he kicks, his shoes towards a frame, and he uses the glass to cut his ropes. He picks up a bloody two-headed coin and then kisses his wife goodbye. It was very tragic and heartwarming all at the same time. In the present, Aaron emerges from the water and hops onto a ski-doo, most elaborate escape plan ever. But Batman is flying overhead, so he grabs her. She stabs his arm. Shouldn't he be armored? They both drop. She pulls an X-23, Marvel, and has a knife in her boot. But Batman wraps her up with some bolas, she spits in his face, and Batman welcomes her back to Gotham. Next, Sparks. Hey, one random question, I guess. Why only one bullet? Why was there only one bullet? He has two of everything. I mean, number one, I think the art in this book was was really great, especially when it came to Two-Face, just looking at his room. Half of it's really nice, the other half is bad. He's got two guns, one bullet. Do you have any thoughts on this? But were there not two bullets? He put one in the gun... 
to see if he's going to kill himself and then put the other one in as well. Maybe. I mean, I double check. I mean, when I was looking at it, I can look again, but there was only one. No, it shows. It shows one. Yeah. The thi- the, okay. So here's the thing: if he's got two guns, you know, maybe he's one gun's the one he takes. The one, the other gun's the one he spins the, the uh-huh. cylinder every day Russian to see if he's going to kill himself. Yeah. But if he's playing Russian roulette, yes, you would think that he would have two bullets and not just one. I, you know, it, it's just okay. a thing. You know, it's oh. just, this is like trivial thing where everybody has to, everything has to have two. Well, that's his maybe stick, you'd have, a little, Maybe you'd have three bullets. It's his so stick, it was, but not everything is two. Well, jeez. Like, so he doesn't 50. travel in two cars at the same time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, last time I record with these people. Uh, it's also curious. He has an acid bottle. I guess he took that as remembrance of who he is. Okay, well, I'm moving on to another question, Dustin. It'll be okay. Um, how how do you like the switch in origin? I mean, rather than it taking place in a trial against Sal Maroni, he gets his acid flung on his face by this Aaron McKillen. So, what do you think? So, you know, I was I, I was reading a bunch of stuff, including the review that was posted on the website by Derek um, about you know people having problems with this. And here's the thing. I don't really care. I really didn't have a problem with it. You know, as much as it's, it's, you know, here's the thing. Yes. The classic element of Sal Maroney being the person who throws the acid at him in the middle of a courthouse. That's, that's fine. But nowadays when you're thinking about how somebody could actually get some sort of acid into a courthouse and be able to throw it at somebody it just isn't it's not as feasible as it was when two-face was originally created so do i have a problem with it no not really but i don't know if anybody also noticed during the entire book there was a ton of art uh where they were showing people half faces um bruce was taking a shower and the water was going over half of his face the shadow was covering almost half of alfred's face while he was scrubbing the gravestone uh, Gordon was shaving and half his face was covered with shaving cream. So I, I just found those little things interesting. Yeah, I didn't notice that at first, but that's uh, a cool haul. Um, I didn't really mind so much either because my understanding is um, the most famous origin, um, at least uh, the Long Halloween, isn't actually like the original origin either. And Two Faces had several origins. Is that correct? It's always really been tied to Sal Maroni in some way, but it's not It's not always been Sal Maroni because, I mean, like, you look at Batman the Animated Series, it was Rupert Thorne who was involved and it wasn't in the courthouse. You look at, I mean, obviously these are media incarnations, but you look at The Dark Knight and it was, a, you know, gasoline got on his face and Sal Maroni really had nothing to do with it. It was more of a joker. But Long Halloween, that was that was different. I mean, like, Long Halloween was really the story that established Two-Face as a prominent character. I mean, he had appearances prior, but, like, it was never really like, oh, this is what it is, and we're going to go in depth and tell you the the, the big, long explanation. It, it didn't really bother me that much. I, I like the courthouse scene. I think that works well. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I wasn't particularly bothered by this. Like, I mean, that's always been a thing, how it's half of his face exactly, but... Um, that's, I guess, comic books. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not upset by the new origin. No, I, I also thought that it worked well. I, I wasn't turned off at all. 
especially if we're introducing this character, I, I hesitate to say new because who knows if she's been in old 52 um, or old pre new 52. Sorry about that. But I, I had no issues with it. I, I thought that it was written well and uh, looking forward to see what it will be like next issue. Next question was, uh, the number of different stories slash segues that, that were sort of going on, because we do have the meeting of the, the crime family, we've got Bruce and what he's doing, which is actually, it's not really a Batman book in my opinion, it was more of like Two-Face, it was a Two-Face heavy book, but do they work well and move well together with all of the different things that's going on and then the backflash? Did you think it worked seamlessly? You know, I don't. I don't think I had any real problems with the way, it the, the way that it was structured. The story was structured. You know, with the flashbacks and stuff like that. You know, I the only th- you know even going not just talking about your question here, but going back to the previous question. The only thing that's kind of weird is the fact that like you know they're focusing on this this newly established character, this Aaron McKellen. You know, and you know the funny thing is, you know, I when we were talking about Clayface, I said you know. They're specifically using characters that already exist. You know, Penguin, as much as we know that he's been overused, they use Penguin, and it was it worked fine. And here, they use a character that has never really been mentioned ever before. I don't even think her family name has been mentioned before, as far as related to the Gotham crime family. So it's interesting that they went so outside the box with somebody like that, but... You know, the fact that she's... The one thing that I find interesting is that... The the big thing that I found interesting was the fact that she is basing her operations out of Ireland. Even though she's basically running some sort of crime family that's non-existent inside... or She's she's running her crime side of the family in Gotham from Ireland. Yet they have safe houses, they have all these escape hatches all these contingency plans to get her out in case she gets caught, even though she's never there. They made a point to say she's never around. She, you know, she has nothing to do with, with Gotham very much. And because of that, her cousin's pointing out that the, that the, her, their chunk of the crime in Gotham is being slowly hacked away by the other crime families. So it's interesting of all the people, she's the one character they're focusing around. And, I just found it weird how her cousin was making a point about, oh, we've spent so much resources, you know, trying, trying to make this work with you being in Ireland and work, you know, being the head of the crime, being the head of the family from Ireland. But then they've got all these safe houses set up all over the place and they have all these escape plans for her to get out. It just seems so much more than what they should have if they're already struggling. Like, if she's never around, why would they have all of this stuff? That's besides the point. the The thing that the only the the only questionable thing that I had was in relationship to the art, and it was at the end when she spits. It looked like she was spitting chunks of something at him, and when it was on his face, yes, it kind of looked like spit, but it also kind of looked like something else. It didn't. Necessarily, I don't know. I don't. I, I'm I'm trying to think of like some picturing somebody drawing yeah. spit in a comic book. I don't really, I can't really see something other than what mm-hmm. it was. But I had a, I was really thinking to myself, why is she? What is she spitting at him? That's like weird. Yeah, I thought they were beads at first, but then I realized, oh well, it's just like a capture of spit at that time. I mean, it is spit. Are you questioning whether it's spit or not? 
No, no, no. But no, no I understand. When you said when you said she spit at her, spit at him, I was like, yeah, it's got to be spit. But I really thought to myself, hmm, is she like, I don't know. The, just when I first saw it, I was thinking to myself, it kind of looked like it was foam. Yeah. And I was thinking, did she like bite something like a not to the extreme, but did she bite something like a cyanide capsule in mm-hmm. her mouth or something else, and then spit it at Batman? And I'm just like, I had no idea. Like, I was slightly lost because I didn't really immediately think this is spit. That's a strange uh, thing to note upon. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I saw it as spit and nothing else. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I uh, didn't have a problem with the storytelling um, other than perhaps the Batman's opening scene because all I could think of was Dark Knight Rises. Um, I wish we had Don here to do his where's the trigger voice, but yeah. sadly, he's not with us anymore. He betrayed us. He did. I, I'm, I know, still hurting. Um, no problems with this issue. Yeah, I think even though there was a lot going on, it, it could have been told poorly, but they do they do well with it. I think it is interesting now that I think of it how much the focus really is on Two-Face and you don't really see much of Batman. I have to say I was disoriented with the, the first page with Batman and just the where is it, when is it, where is it, when is it, because you don't know. For me anyways, I didn't know what was going on until we actually see these crime family people meeting together. I also think perhaps you could have taken out the whole grave scene. Um, maybe time, maybe it would have been better to save that towards the end of this story. I think they're just trying to foreshadow. Yeah. What's going to what happen soon. Come. Yeah. I, I guess it's- because even when you look at uh, last month with Ra's al Ghul um, or the villains issue with Ra's al Ghul, there's, there's a hint that something's going to happen. I don't know how, lo- how far out it is though either. That's the other thing because Russell Gould's a pretty prominent character in the pages of Red Hood and the Outlaws right now and it's kind of tied up with the stuff that's happening over there. So it'll be interesting to see how soon he actually does appear. I mean, Two-Face is going to be in this book for, a, you know, a little bit of time because I know that uh, I believe I don't. I think it's this month's issue. I can't remember for sure if it's this month's issue, but this there's one of the upcoming issues is focusing on how Two Face connects to Carrie Kelly. Oh boy! I don't know why. I don't know why, but it's just his long lost daughter. <laughs> um, that was some something you just mentioned. Then was um about the graves. Uh, I don't know why. For some reason, in Batman Inc., I didn't get the feeling that he was really angry about it. That could have just been an art thing. And I think it was, there's only a, a panel or two um, focused around the dug up graves. And maybe that was just, I misinterpreted it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe if I went back and looked, I'd realize that actually, no, he's angry and why wouldn't he be? But um, I don't know. That, that felt a bit strange just because of how I interpreted it the first time. Batman and Robin number 24, I'm going to give a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. I'll give this 4 out of 5 batterings. And I will agree. I guess I'm just going 4 all the way. 4 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so over on the website, Derek gave it 2.5 out of 5 batterings. And if you do want to read a completely different take on this issue, uh, Derek was not a fan of this issue specifically because of the differences of origin. So I suggest you head over to Comic Editorials on the website and look for that review of Batman number 24. So that's going to give... Batman and Robin, number 24, a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our final book, Damien, Son of Batman, number 1. You know, Bats, we've been doing this little runaround of ours for years. 
It's been loads of laughs. But the sad fact is, none of us are getting any younger. Damien, Son of Batman, number one of four, written and drawn by Andy Kubert. The issue opens some unknown year in the future where Damien has apparently been resurrected and he and Batman are investigating a slaughter at the Gotham City docks. Amongst the corpses is a jokerized fish, which when prodded by Batman, explodes, showering the dynamic duo in flame and body parts. Dazed, Robin comes to, and after digging his father out of the carnage, finds him dead. After Bruce's funeral, we cut to weeks later, where Damien has travelled to one of several homes of his grandfather, Raish Al Ghul. Sorry. <laughs> I'll still say I, I do, you know, I do either, because I know there are two parties. Damien asks for his help in avenging the death of his father, but Raish denies it, saying he severed his ties to the League of Shadows when he took up the mantle of Robin. They say the only option for him now is to become the new Batman. Damien laughs off this idea, but we cut to him in the Batcave where he's reviewing all of Batman's rogues who claim to be the one who have killed him. Angered by this, Robin goes on a rampage, taking out everyone he taking out everyone he had seen on the computer before visiting a church to confess his sins. The father apparently knows who Damien is and his connection to Batman and attempts to talk Damien out of killing, but he doesn't listen. Back in Wayne Manor, Alfred is questioning Damien about the death of several villains, but he storms off to the Batcave, refusing to answer him. In the cave, Damien dons his costume and prepares to head out, where there is a shout from behind him. As he turns around, we see Bruce Wayne confronting him to be continued. So, yeah, uh, the first thing, I guess, is where do you think this issue is or should be placed? Because it says sometime in the future, but, I mean, do you think that this should be an incontinuity book or is this like an untitled Elseworlds tale? Uh, I really wanted this to be in continuity, and I think... Man, I feel like you're almost going to have it both ways, uh, just because a lot of it really seems to start to connect with um, Batman 666 and everything in the future. However, he's killing ja- – he killed Japanese in this issue. Like, he's killing all the people he's going for, and that was his one guy, that sort of his arch nemesis that we saw with the future Damien. So I almost feel like maybe this is the path – that if you know those books where choose your own adventure, if Damien hadn't died sometime in the future, this would have been how it would have turned out. So I feel like it's closer to an out of continuity Elseworld story with Damien. It's is it is probably similar to you know what Stella's saying as far as it is probably out. Of, I'm sure it's out of continuity as far as everything legitimately goes, but I'm thinking more on the lines of when you look at it from the perspective of if Damien didn't die, you know, could this have happened? I think it's possible. The question is though, I mean, there's, there's this thing that happens at the end of the issue, which is kind of like the big elephant in the room when you're talking about, is this real or not? Because suddenly Bruce Wayne appears at the end of the issue. Um, okay. Well, that's kind of interesting. He didn't die despite the fact that, Damien thought he died. So the question is, how, you know, what exactly is happening here? Why is Bruce Wayne making everyone believe he's dead, especially if it's not that far into the future? And honestly, Damien's only a couple years, he only seems like maybe he's maybe the age of Dick Grayson or something like that. So, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if the case is that he's, you know, maybe 20 years old or something like that, 
then why is Batman as old as he is? Especially since Damien's supposed to be growing faster. I think it ultimately just comes down to, yes, it's out of continuity. Yes, this probably is like what would happen if Damien didn't die in the pages of Batman Incorporated. I don't think this is going to somehow bring Damien back. So I think ultimately, yes, it's, it's, it's out of continuity. It's not the same. And, you know, the, you know, do I have hopes that there's somehow, maybe at some point in this story, they're going to reference maybe Damien, maybe this is real and maybe this, maybe this is a distant, you know, maybe this is the future. And maybe the reason why Damien is much younger than Bruce Wayne is because something happens in the future where Bruce decides, to, or, you know, somehow something happens where Damien comes back. I don't know. It's just, it's out of continuity for now, but there's a lot of questions as to what exactly is happening. Yeah, as for me, uh, not necessarily in Elseworlds, but um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this, this should be titled something else, I think, because you can always then bring it back into a continuity. Uh, this just feels strange having this story kind of out there, not knowing if it's supposed to be the future or if it's kind of an alternate future or something like that. Um, but yeah, that, that's all I had on that. Uh, the other thing I, yeah, this whole, I, I'm interested to see where this story goes, this kind of Bruce Wayne coming back from the supposed dead, that sort of stuff. Um, there's definitely something strange about that. Uh, I'm not sure if priest is the right word, but that guy in the confessional um, mm-hmm. saying, you know, I know you. So I wonder if that was Bruce in disguise or something strange. I don't know. That's what but, my uh, thought was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'd be interested in talking about is the art, because normally I'm a, a big fan of Andy Kubert. Um, this issue, I, I still liked it, but uh, he was inking himself, and uh, it wasn't as clean as, uh, as usual. Um, there, I mean, it was in, definitely interesting. Like some of the, there's a bit of painted stuff in there when Robin was knocked out. That was really cool. Uh, so you see some of the pencils come through and some of the kind of the self inking and stuff, and that's kind of nice. It's got a nice texture to it. You even see where he's kind of outlined some of the boxes, uh, the panels, I should say. Um, so that was kind of interesting, but it didn't, it wasn't very clean, and it felt, it didn't feel of its time. Um, it felt like an old. An old book. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else get that sense? Yeah, I definitely. I got that feeling that it was, you know, th- this was a book that was drawn not in this time. It really felt as if it was. You look at some of the art from the '90s and early '90s, I should say, and it reminded me of a lot of that. It reminded me a lot of that kind of art. But then the other aspect of it was, it really felt to me as if the art was rushed. It didn't seem like compare. If you compare this art to some of other some of the other Andy Kubert's art. It really just, it doesn't, to me, seem the same. Like, I have a, uh, a print by Andy Hubert, uh, on my wall sitting across from me right now. And looking at that art compared to the art that was in this book, it just felt like it was rushed to me. And I don't know why, because I feel like they would have had this book, like, well ahead of schedule, because it wasn't something that was going to be a monthly until they announced it as a monthly. So, to me, I don't really understand it, but, you know, I guess, you know, we get... I think I could explain that. Um, and I think it's because he's inking himself. Um, normally, I think, during Flashpoint, Sandra Hope 
did some really nice inking. Uh, Jesse Delpadang, I think, was the other inker on that series. Um, because he's inking himself, I imagine... I, I've seen some of his rough pencils, and they are a lot rougher. They're a lot sketchier. And I think that comes through when he's inking himself, because you know, he, he doesn't clean it up as much. He keeps it as a you know, slightly more artistic, I guess. Which, um, yeah, I think I, I prefer it when it's cleaned up a bit. I, I still like it, but it, you're right, it has got a kind of 90s feel to it. Um, and even the colouring was a bit muted and stuff, but uh, yeah, still. Oh, <clears throat> there were, I, I enjoyed it. I think there were some really awesome panels and everything that went along. I do agree that it, it felt of a different time. Uh, frankly, when I was reading, I'm like, man, why am I getting this feeling like I'm reading Batman Odyssey? There were really moments. I think no. it was the floating heads was the bit that yeah, really got th- me. Th- yeah, there were just some moments I thought, oh man, I really feel like uh, this is this is similar to that. And, and it almost made me <laughs> um, not enjoy the story as much, but I, I like this story. But I just kept thinking about Odyssey and I'm like, no, Stella, it is not Odyssey, it is not Odyssey. But that's that's really what I connected with it with. But there are some really original panels, I think. I especially liked his use of it almost seemed like watercolors. I mean, I guess artists now really do use, you know, Photoshop and everything, but just that that really disorienting page where Damien is is waking up from from the blast of the fish and everything and just the the first three panels and everything. I just loved how those three were put together. And it was really simple, but I just loved how how he did that. The only thing is, I do think that some of the dialogue was, it didn't feel natural. It didn't really flow. Did anyone else get that? I mean, I know he's not really a writer. He's, he's definitely an artist first. Did anyone else get that sense? That it wasn't, that it didn't flow well? Yeah, it felt kind of not, I don't think force is the word. It just, it felt a bit, I, there was no, there's no life in the, in what they were saying. I was a little put off by the um, the way they were doing the narration. I don't know if this sort of goes with what you're talking about, but just I, it seemed like I, I just couldn't get a handle on what is this gray book entry? What is this like the way are, are they dating it uh, the way that Star Trek dates things? <laughs> 7A Delta 2. I'm like, what is that? But that's... Um, that sort of threw me off, just the, the way the narration went. I, I think that using the dialogue and the images could have worked fine, but this narration just sort of threw me off, and uh, that was tough for me to, to go along with. Death had embraced me yet again. Like, it's very uh, philosophical rather than a straightforward narrative of what stuff is going on. And he must be talking to somebody. I don't know. I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with the narration as much as it seems that you did, but at the same point... There was there was problems. Um, I I instantaneously as soon as they said you know great casebook I I figured that was you know Damien's version of the black casebook that you know so seemingly referencing the stuff that Grant Morrison did with Batman. Um, but at the same time there was some other problems. Um, but to me it wasn't as overpowering i uh, i didn't feel as if this was written as well as it could have been as a story regardless of who it was by um and i, I just felt like overall combined the art which to me wasn't to par what andy kubert is what i'm used to with andy kubert and then you combine that with the fact that the story was just kind of like it, i mean it wasn't a bad story but 
the the actual writing of the story was kind of average to me. It really didn't feel like this really should have happened the way it did. Uh, well, I think we could say this that about the whole series, to be honest. But uh, yeah, Damien, son of Batman, number one. I'm going to give a twelve three and a half out of five bad ratings. Damien, son of Batman, number one. I'm actually going to give a two and a half out of five better rings. Um, I think I will agree with Dustin and give a 3.5 out of five better rings. All right, so that gives Damien, son of Batman, number one, a total of three and a half out of five better rings. That is all of our books. Let's throw over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of Back Books for Beginners. I am your host, John. And this episode, we are looking at part four of Batman No Man's Land. In this episode, we'll be covering Batman 565, Detective Comics 732, Batman Chronicle 16, and Azrael Agent of the Bat 53. And these, again, can all be found in Batman Volume 1 which has been released around 2010-2011. It features writing by Greg Rucker, Scott Beatty and Dennis O'Neill, and art by Frank Terran, Jason Pearson, Damian Scott, Chris Renaud and Roger Robinson. Batman opens with a group of false faces having a meeting saying that they should purge Gotham. A section of the attacker man but are stopped by Batgirl. We then move to the Batcave where Batgirl and Batman talk about the gang moving south. Batman tells Helena, who is now Batgirl, she must deal with it. It then moves to the army of false faces who begin their attack on the police territory, which they had planned. The first target is Gotham Clock Tower, where Babs is based. However, before the attack can happen, Batgirl arrives. Detective opens with Batgirl taking on the gang. At the same time, Jim Gordon races to protect Bat, and Jim arrives just in time. Barbara is fine, and Batgirl has dealt with the gang. Batman takes Black Mask to Black Gate, which is under his control. However, outside people beg to get in. However, Lockup and KGB Beast are stopping them. We then cut to Jim Gordon, who is fighting with Sarah, but then moves to Barbara, who has caught Batman. She gets angry that she's been replaced. They talk and Barbara accept that she had to be replaced. Meanwhile, Jim and Sarah Essen make up as well. Batman Chronicle opens with two down. Detective Renee Montoya is given the day off. She returns home and is told her brother is back. Renee goes to find him. She discovers him working with Two-Face. However, Two-Face is helping rescue a small child and then an adult with the help of Montoya. However, as they work, the building collapses on Montoya and Two-Face. But he rescues her. Batman appears to arrest him. However, Montoya pleads to allow him to let her look after him. Batman agrees and leaves. 
Home Comforts has two people breaking into a building, but they discover a hideout and explore. They move about and the woman falls into a pit. As she dries off, she touches some cosmetics. As they move about, they discover a room full of dead hostages. However, Batgirl arrives and gets them out, just as the building explodes. And we learn that it is, in fact, the Joker's hideout. However, it ends with the woman being affected by Joker Venom. Harold tells the tale of what happened to Harold after the earthquake. He starts to fix things, but Alfred asks him to leave, so he does. However, he sees Gotham in the state that it is, and he is happy because he is able to fix the whole of Gotham. Azrael opens with the Joker complaining that he can't terrorise anyone. We then move to Azrael tracking the cannibal from last time. However, Batman tells him to deal with the Joker. Meanwhile, the Joker is broken into an orphanage and takes them all hostage. Azrael finds him, however, and Joker forces Azrael to get to a pipe or he will kill the kid he's taken hostage. He seals Azrael in, but the sidekick who was instructed to do the job did a poor job and Azrael escapes. He takes out the goons but hesitates and the Joker escapes. And the issue ends with Batman telling Azrael that he did okay. So these are all quite short stories, and to be honest, nothing really amazing happens in any of these stories, and I don't really feel like it's moving the story along. These are all kind of descriptive things of what's going on, and a little bit of how life is inside No Man's Land, which I think is a really, really nice touch, is really clever, and really quite interesting in places. But... I didn't feel that there were any stories where I felt really emotionally connected. It was nice to see Barbara's reaction to Batgirl arriving and see how she handled that. But that was really just a a side note, to be honest. The rest of it wasn't that great. And then, to be honest, is nothing really that I think will interest anyone or that I would say is essential reading. I really dislike the artwork in all four of them. The first two stories in Batman and Detective are very line heavy, very kind of trying to be artistic, and it doesn't really work for me. The final two, all the way through Batman Chronicle and also through Asriel, the artwork is very cartoony, very stylized. And again, I wasn't a big fan of it. There was nothing that really kept me wanting to read or really that I felt made it look very nice at all. The Joker essentially looks like somebody who listens to indie music if you want to imagine a stereotype at all. And I thought that there was overall nothing that made me think, wow, I've just read an amazing Batman story. I would give these, to be honest, two out of five Batarangs. I think they're pretty disappointing, and I don't think there's anything, well, anything worth picking up at all. So that's my review of the part four of Batman's No Man's Land. Next time, we'll be doing part five. So look out for those episodes coming up. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please do leave them in the comment section beneath this podcast on the Batman Universe website. Or alternatively, leave it in the comments section for the comic podcast. 
and I will make sure to read them. So I've been your host, John, that English guy. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you all next time. That was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you check out the feed, especially since now we are on Batman No Man's Land Part 4. So if you've missed the last couple episodes of either the comic cast or Bat Books for Beginners, the first couple parts of No Man's Land have are on the actual Bat, Bat Books for Beginners feed on the website. And uh, as you listen to it either here or on its individual feed, I would suggest that you also leave comments as to, you know, whether or not, not only did you like uh, John's take on the book, or give comments about your take on the books that he's specifically reviewing. So with that, uh, we're going to jump straight into our listener Q&As. <laughs> Boy, did you get a wrong number. Leave your message at the sound of the shriek. I've got a couple of different ones to go over, uh, a couple from the website. The first one is from the co-host formerly known as Don. He says, uh, great episode, guys. Excellent flow throughout and entertaining as ever. In the lead up to yet another Batman crossover, many have complained that the books are getting sucked into Scott Snyder's world with each year. As much as I might agree, it might be said that Bat crossovers have plagued the DC Universe on a fairly regular basis since Nightfall. While they weren't as repetitive as they might seem now, stories like Last Laugh, No Man's Land, Murder Fugitive, War Games, and R.I.P. did enmesh books like Nightwing, Birds of Prey, and Robin, and are generally looked back on more favorably. Do you think that this is a difference in how DC approaches back crossovers now in the New 52 as opposed to before? Also, with Batgirl, it's been said by Dustin that much of the drama in the current story arc could be solved easily if Babs simply told her father about her double identity. Gail Simone doesn't seem to be going that route, so how do you think, how do you three predict this story will end up? Not what should happen or what you'd like to see happen, but based on the issues leading up to its end, what do you think will happen? Finally, with which DC superhero do you enjoy seeing team up with Batman and why? The usual answer may be Superman, although I'd argue that stories tend to facilitate between the world's finest heroes enjoying each other's companies and the Dark Knight Returns uh, bastard children of the two not getting along and complaining throughout their crossover. What are some others? The Flash, Black Canary, Man- Martian Manhunter? Okay, so, Don, thanks for loading us with a ton of questions here. <laughs> the first thing we'll talk about is the crossovers. Uh, do I think that DC approaches their crossovers differently now in the New 52 as opposed to before? Well, I think what it comes down to is that DC, they do, they, they well, if you look at the way they publicize, they do their, their publicity and their PR stuff for their everything, whatever it is, there's a lot more of it nowadays than there was when some, you know, a lot of those crossovers were happening in the 90s, you know, most of the time, the only public relation type stuff that you'd ever see about big crossovers like Nightfall was in the back of the book during the editor's letters. That was like the extent of DC reaching out and, and you know, discussing stuff with fans. Yeah, you might get, you, they had comic magazines back then, which would randomly, you know, do some uh, interviews with writers and artists and stuff like that. But for the most part, it wasn't as 
prominently publicized as much as it is now. So I think a lot of it is because of the way the media has changed as far as how everything needs to get covered, how fast it needs to get, and how much you can throw out there. I think the problem is that a lot of the time, DC throws so much publicity about certain things that it's almost overpowering when it comes to some of these books. So when you look at some of the crossovers, we've complained that a lot of the crossovers, the books that actually are supposed to intertwine with Night of Owls, Death of the Family, and now with Zero Month this month, a lot of these issues, they don't have hardly anything to actually do with the story. It's just a, it's a marketing ploy by DC to get the books better numbers by tying them into something, tying them loosely as possible to something that is selling very well with Scott Snyder. So I think the problem is that a lot of this stuff that happens with these crossovers is DC saying, well, Batman is our top book. You know, it's been our top book for a while. What can we do to capitalize on that to get sales for other books? Well, anytime that there's a long story arc that Scott Snyder's doing, why not do a crossover? Because at least for one month or, you know, in, in most cases, one month out of the year, you'll have all of the books, you know, have a little bit of a surge in sales. And then, you know, they can go back to doing whatever they're doing. The problem is that most of the time when that stuff happens, it it's disconnected from the current stories that are being portrayed in those books. So it's almost as if it is nothing but a marketing ploy. And that's part of the reason why I think these crossovers are so much different than the crossovers pre-New 52 is because a lot of the crossovers nowadays are just a marketing ploy for DC to get more sales. It's not about the quality of the story and then and the writers saying, oh, I really want to tie into it. It really feels like it's somebody at DC saying, you need to tie into it because you're not selling the book well enough and this will sell the book a little bit better. Yeah, I think um, before a crossover meant an actual crossover, so I mean, there were also less titles, which helps, but like three books, you know, each issue carries on the story, so you have to read, you know, one of each. Whereas now DC are always saying, you know, oh, you don't have to read every single issue, but, you know, they'll all add to the overall story. And it's not a crossover anymore. It's just a banner that they can stick at the top of the issue and say, oh, this is related to this. And it can be so ridiculously related, like, just tangentially, like, the character can kind of, like, walk in in the background, like it did on in that infamous Court of Owls, um, what was it, the uh, All-Star Western tie-in, which... Yeah, so I, it, they don't have to be timed anymore. Like, like you were kind of saying, it's so tangential that, that it kind of, there's no benefit to it anymore. Man, these, these events are wearing me out. I, I, maybe I'm the only one, but it just seems like, oh, they, they keep us coming. And, and I don't know if it's Marvel that always says it or if DC does as well, but they always say, you know, we're not about the events and we're not about crossovers, but, you know, even if if you want to get the full story, you have to buy all the books. And if you continue on in your own little world, if you just read Batgirl and Birds of Prey, then you're going to be missing other stuff that happens. And this has even happened on my show where I've had to explain, like, I've had to look at other books and explain what happened, what wrapped it up. Because, like, Birds of Prey, for instance, crossed over with Talon. And so I had to explain, well, what happened? And it only wrapped, it wrapped up in the, like the first three pages and then it went back to Bane and everything. But still I had to 
figure out what happened before moving on. And just like, you know, Dustin said, sometimes these things don't even involve what is actually happening in the the book's universe because I'm really frustrated with this forever evil business because it seemed like it was supposed to be this really big game changer especially with Nightwing. Spoiler, Nightwing was unmasked. But how in every Nightwing book that we're reading now, like nothing, they're not dealing with that at all. Everything's completely normal. There's no conversation between Batgirl and Nightwing about him being unmasked or anything. I mean, Death of the Family is the thing that consistently runs through all of the Bat books, and that is frustrating because we still don't understand why everyone is against Batman. It still doesn't make sense. Ten years from now, maybe they'll be back to normal. But it's just frustrating. If you're going to do an event, then there needs to be some continuity. I used to have a friend that used to get on me, like get frustrated because I would talk about continuity. But I think that you either are going to stay in continuity or you're not, and... It For me, I, I think things need to really work together and there needs to be a sense to it. Either all the books are going to work together or they need to be separate. And you can't have it both ways. So that's my thinking on that one. All right. The other, the next comment that he mentioned, uh, as far as what we'd like to see with back or what we think will happen with Batgirl, not what we want to happen or not what we think should happen. Um, what do I think will happen? Um <sighs> Well, the way it's been written is, is it's going to have to come to an head. It's going to be Barbara Gordon versus, versus Commissioner Gordon. And the question is, how will it actually end? We've got, we, we know at least with the, the first, the last issue that was released, uh, number 24 last month, uh, we know that she's on her way to her dad's when she finds out her dad's being, you know, beaten up by all of these thugs that Nightfall, for some reason, sent an overabundance of people to take one man out. Um, she's going to end up coming into contact with him. Um, it's either going to be she, as Batgirl, saves him, and he thinks twice about it, um, but I don't, I don't actually see that happening, because I honestly think he's just going to still be in this weird, I'm blinded by rage type situation, which we've seen consistently throughout the Batgirl series, where he's still going to have to take her in or something like that. But the question is, if he demasks her, which is not going to happen, he'll find out who she is. So he's not going to take her in. It's just going to come down to either one of two things is going to have to happen. Either Barbara's going to officially stop being Batgirl, or Gordon is going to have to give up this 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 idea of Batgirl is the one who killed his son. This all could be solved, of course, by him finding out that his son's not actually dead. But I don't know if that's going to happen either because it hasn't been addressed in any books outside of Suicide Squad. Whatever happens, I'm sure it will make us all angry. Um, <laughs> I, I have a horrible feeling that it's all just kind of once the storyline's over, it's just going to get dropped and never resolved, but everything kind of goes back to normal. Well, oh my gosh. You know, I can just imagine there's going to be an unmasking and their relationship is going to be horrible for several issues. And um, he's going to keep the secret, but he's not going to want to talk to her at all. Uh, that that is my greatest fear, and I mean, I think Dustin was correct when we were reviewing this 
I guess it was the last episode or two episodes of before the fact that when he finds out that it's her, he is not going to be happy. And right now I think I feel like he knows. I mean, again, staring at somebody through a mask, even if it's a ski mask, if it's your daughter, you're probably going to know. And it's going to happen some way. I don't think he is no fool and you, you can't pull the wool over his eyes. He probably knows who Batman is. So he knows who Barbara is, but when the reveal happens, I don't think it's going to be a happy adventure like it was pre-New 52. It's going to be, there's going to be some hell to pay on, on other side, but she's upset with him too. So let's just say that the happy relationship that we knew and loved pre-New 52 is not going to be existing here. Yeah, it could very well be a, I know, but I don't know, kind of, I don't want to know type thing, but. Yeah. All right. And then, Don, your last question about uh, who, who, which DC superhero do we like seeing team up with Batman? Um, my specific choice is, you don't see it that often, but Green Arrow. Uh, recently, what we, we, we did see it a lot during the TV show Batman Brave and the Bold. Uh, Green Arrow did team up with Batman on a number of occasions. I think it's a really interesting team up because they are so similar. The characters are so similar as far as they're both billionaires. They're both superheroes without any real powers. You know, I, I, you know, I've, I've said a number of times before, I, if, you know, if, if Batman was somehow eliminated from the world, I don't know how, I guess Warner Brothers could go out of business somehow and then that'd be the only way. But if Batman was eliminated somehow, the, the next character in my line of characters that I like is Green Arrow. So anytime I see Batman and Green Arrow, it's really cool because I like how similar the characters are. And you see, because they are, because they have such similarities between them, it's really interesting to see what happens when they're together. Oh man, this is tough. You know, I, I do love when Batgirl teams up with him. I, I thought that you know, they've always had uh, a good relationship and they've learned from each other and it only grew in respect as as the years went by because it was like that in the Silver Age. So I'd love to see him with, um, with Batgirl. I'm trying to think of other things in shows and stuff. Anyone that, like, pushes his buttons, I think, is, is an awesome pairing Kai to Gardner. make. Like, Kai, yeah. Well, I don't like Guy. I think he's a jerk. I don't like him anyways. But... I really like um, The Flash. I think any version of The Flash is great with him, especially because very much The Flashes are, are detectives in their own way, more like forensic sciences. But they have the intellect, but they can also have more fun than Batman. For me, anyone that, that's more of the optimist, so like the polar opposite of Batman and can sort of get his goat are, are people that I enjoy uh, seeing him with. I, I think um, The Flash is a bit of a cheat because... Anyone teamed up with the Flash is always going to be a fun story. Well, um, gee, <laughs> uh, it do, it hasn't happened often, but um, the few times that Batman's teamed up with Swamp Thing have been really interesting and really uh, good reads. So I guess Batman and Swamp Thing. Yeah, I think they they there could be a lot of good stories. I think and in the this now you know the fifty two. If he were to leave where where he is, this bat family i think if he were to start going over into more of the darker books um like swamp thing like animal man don't you think like 
there's a lot of good possibilities that we could really switch things up. And I feel like that's maybe what they were trying to do with that Superman Batman team up where they had that supernatural stuff coming in. But we always see Superman and Batman. So why not try different characters and really um, throw us for a loop and, and see what, what comes out of it. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. So our next comment comes from Corbin. He says, that's an interesting question, Don. Does the classic Bruce and Dick count? I'm going to say that's a cheat even though I do like their interaction when they aren't arguing, even though it rarely happens. I'm going to go with Green Arrow and Batman combination. I like their banter back and forth in Justice League Unlimited cartoon as well as Injustice. Just wish I had seen more of that. All right, and then the next one comes from Chris, and he says, Another fine, thorough episode as usual. Did anyone catch the nod to Batman number 20 in Batman number 24 to the cover of Detective Comics number 27 and the nod to Bob Kane with the BK was here scrawled on the wall. Keep up the great work. So, Chris, if you actually remember, we actually, Joe did point out the nod to the Detective Comics number 27 uh, cover. He did point that out in the last episode. Uh, we did, I don't remember anybody pointing out the BK was here, but that's a uh, nice catch there. All right, our uh, final comments uh, comes as an email from Corbin. He is continuing on with the questions that we've asked. He says, hey, guys, I'm glad you appreciated my synopsis of Batman number 23. Best of luck to Donovan as well. He will be missed on the podcast. Dustin asked me a question, so I'm back to answer that and let you know where I'm at in my knowledge of Batman. Am I a new reader from the New 52 or an old reader, or how would I compare the two? I am a new reader. I grew up on the animated series, rarely missing an episode. As a kid and on into my teens, I was also enjoyed the Burton Schumacher movies more than I would like to admit at this point in my life. Then the Nolan movies started coming out. I thought it was great because of the tone, the stories of Batman I felt at least, were growing up with me. In 2011, I found out that DC was rebooting and I wanted to keep up with the new universe. That's when I got into listening to podcasts and the Batman universe was the first one that I discovered. I haven't missed an episode since the New 52 began. About four months ago, however, I was just listening wasn't enough. I wanted to read these stories, and since there were so many good jumping-on points, I I picked the books that sounded good to me that were each of a different character and that were consistently getting good reviews. As to pre-New 52, I haven't read much. I'm doing well keeping up with my monthly books. Like I said in the last episode, I just read Year One, which I loved. I have also read The Man Who Laughs and Made of Wood stories. The Man Who Laughs was okay, but Made of Wood I found to be more fun. I read Tony Daniels' Battle for the Cowl, but I didn't like that story at all because it felt incomplete. He kept bringing in new villains, and then you would never see or hear from them again. I tried reading Morrison's Arkham Asylum, but didn't get very far. I found reading it as reading it difficult, although it wasn't Morrison's fault. I just didn't enjoy the art. I plan on reading more stories such as Long Halloween, Dark Victory, and The Killing Joke as soon as I am able. So having read a little of the previous universe, comparing the pre-New 52 and New 52 is difficult for me at this point. Hopefully a problem that I can alleviate at some point. If you have any other questions for me, you would like to ask, fire away. But I do have a question for you. As far as pre-New 52 stories storylines, which ones would you suggest for a new reader, like myself? One that wouldn't require a lot of backstory to know what's going on. Well, Corbin, uh, I, you know, this is kind of like a default 
question in some ways because we get asked this a lot of times. Um, some of the stories you actually mentioned that you're looking, that you're actually planning on reading Long Halloween, Dark Victory, Killing Joke, those are ones that you really need to read and are perfect because you don't, definitely don't need to know a whole lot of information about, about those those the, the, really a whole lot of anything before you read those books. I mean, you just know who Batman is, and you can basically go from there. It's those stories are pretty well explained, and uh, do a really good job. Outside of that, a story that if you that I would suggest, and of course this is another default one that I suggest all the time, but No Man's Land, and specifically because No Man's Land is again one of those 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 stories where it is very very large. But it covers so many different aspects of the Batman universe that if you don't know a lot about the Batman universe, you'll learn a lot. You'll learn, you know, you know, you got spoiler in there. You got Cass Kane in there. You've got, uh, oracles in that story. You've got, you know, all of the, the majority of all of the main Batman's rogues galleries in there in some way, shape or form. I mean, you have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, if you read the story from beginning to end, it is a decent story. Um, that gets people well acquainted with everything that there is in Gotham, even if it is, a, you know, a dire situation where it's to the extreme. But for the most part, it does a really good job of setting, uh, you know, giving you an idea of all of the different characters that there are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Long Halloween was actually the first Batman that I read. Um, and I got on fine. Um, Dark Victories is another great read. Uh, sticking with Jeff Loeb, um, it's not one of my favorites, but a lot of people really like Hush, and that's definitely been said to be a, a great dumping on point. Kind of introduces a lot of villains again, um, especially if you're into Jim Lee, then it's more of a showcase for Jim Lee than, than a story. But, uh, it, it's still, you know, it has a bit of a slow start, but, um, overall an enjoyable story as well. So I, I'd recommend that as well for a, a newer reader i of course will recommend uh back row your one <laughs> i mean i'm always gonna recommend that back row your one uh i recommend any of the showcases i think for for well really anything especially i mean as long as you like black and white because obviously they're not in color but if you want to get to know the characters way back when i, I really I mean, I, they're fun. Obviously, the early, early ones are more corny than fun now, but I think you develop a pre- an appreciation for them. I'll second the No Man's Land. Um, out of the Batman universe, I will say that Identity Crisis is, is one of my favorite, um, I guess you would call that a mini series. Um, I, I just think it's wonderful. Again, there's a lot of, um, a lot of different characters in there, mainly focusing on the Justice League, but it's also like a murder mystery, which is really exciting. If you really want to be overwhelmed, uh, more so than, um, No Man's Land. And if it, any of the crises really are gonna, are gonna, I wouldn't throw recommend you into Infinite, everything. uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth, so. I've, I've tried to oh, read true. that book so many times. I have it, and it's kind of by my bed. And if I want to fall asleep quickly, then I start reading it. I'm about five pages in, oh, man. and then <laughs> and you I start crash out. 
Yeah. But there there are just so many uh wonderful things. I like to sometimes just Google search like best Batman stories to read and they really pop up like Amazon especially people will come up with lists of the best things to read and I think you can really get something there. There are wonderful Elseworld stories, Speeding Bullets, which is technically um a Superman story because it is Clark Kent who becomes Batman. Um, but there are just wonderful stories uh, that, that you can get in trade now and, and collected now on collected uh, at TBU where, where we're starting to review ones that are being resolicited and everything. And I think uh, we may even start doing older trades as well that you can still pick up. So, so anything I, I really do recommend just looking at some lists like top 10 lists and people um, have good ideas. All right. So with that, um, that is all of our listener Q and A's. If you have listener, if you have questions or concerns that you'd like to be brought up on the next episode of the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net, or the simplest way to get a hold of us is to leave a comment in the comment section below the podcast post over on the website. With that, uh, before we close out this episode, I do want to remind everybody that this is Zero Month. Um, it is yet another crossover, but there is a ton of books outside of the main books that uh, we cover here on the podcast that are tying into Zero Month. Even some that we don't even cover on the Point Five cast. So I just want to remind everybody of those books now, just because there are, there's a lot of books that are going to be part of this Zero Month that... I don't necessarily think that they're all worth covering as, you know, we need to here on the comic cast, but they are something that maybe you should check out and see. So outside of Batman number 25, some of the books that will be included in zero month are action comics, number 25, Batgirl number 25, Batwing number 25, birds of prey, number 25, Catwoman number 25, Nightwing number 25, detective comics, number 25, the Flash, number 25, Green Lantern Corps, number 25, Green Arrow, number 25, and Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 25. So there's a bunch of books. That, I mean, the big ones that we don't normally cover would be Action Comics, Flash, Green Lantern, uh, Green Lantern Corps, Green and Green Arrow. Those are books that we don't cover here or on the Point Five cast. So those four books, you know, those might be worth something worth looking into just to see how they supposedly tie into the idea of zero month. Now keep in mind, this isn't necessarily them tying into Batman. This is them tie them telling a story of their character from that book and where that character was at the same time that Batman zero year was taking place. So it's just, it could be an interesting thing. It's also could be an interesting point. If you're just a Batman fan to check out some other DC books, especially when you have a, possible reason to look at these books when they're tying into an event. Um, for example, Green Arrow is supposed to be coming to Gotham and fighting with Killer Moth in the pages of number 25. So, interesting nonetheless. Uh, some of them are uh, Green Lantern Corps. John Stewart's going to be going head-to-head with Anarchy. Something that you should just probably take a look at, see see if there's anything out there, uh, you know, outside of the Bat books that you might be interested in as well. So with that, uh, that is everything for this episode. I do want to remind everybody that you can head over to the website for all the latest news related to not only the comics, but also movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and any other news related to the Batman universe. 
You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. You can join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans about everything related to Batman and even some things that aren't. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. And I do want to remind everybody that we are still looking for staff members for the Batman Universe. If you are looking to, uh, re- if you are interested in reviewing books, reporting specific elements of the news related to the Batman Universe, or you have some other skills that you th- believe that you feel like you should share with the Batman Universe, uh, send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. We will get back to you and uh, try to get you going with uh, working with the Batman Universe. So with that, that is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is John. And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe comic podcast. We'll see you guys in two weeks. No, it's just funny. You said hello, and then he said hello, and then you said hello again, and then he said hello again. It was like a little comedy routine. Okay. We'll do the same when we say goodbye and you get ready for that. That would be great. Is he coming down? Yes, he's coming down very slow. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, I can see her downstairs. You're supposed to be upstairs. What? No more. No more what? No more peace. No, you're going to go back upstairs. <laughs> if you go upstairs, we'll play the play goes after. Yeah, you gotta go upstairs now. He's upset because you said Legos when it's Lego. <laughs> Joe! What's the plural of Lego? No. It's Lego. It's like sheep. <laughs> oh you my don't God. say one, one sheep is not a one sheep. It's Yeah? What is it? A lamb. That's a baby <laughs> sheep. Oh my God! Oh my gosh! Please keep this. Uh... Oh, wow. This is just a menagerie of things that go on here. Um, Green Lantern Corpse, nine, number 25. Green Arrow, number 25. And Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 25. You mean so, Green Lantern Core, right? Like, not corpses and dead body? No, he meant corpse. Okay. <laughs> I'm just waiting for an email saying that uh, I call it lambs instead of sheep. <laughs> <laughs> As my conversation was already posted on Facebook before I even finished this recording. <laughs> of course it was. Have a nice day.